Hello and welcome to this episode of the Gaming Podcast, the official podcast of Gaming Magazine. You can check out more from Gaming Magazine by visiting www.gamingmag.com. That's G-A-Y-M-I-N-G mag.com. Remember, new episodes of the Gaming Podcast come out every two weeks. If you're new to the podcast, please click subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Later in the show, I'm going to be joined by Mark Pick from Bossa to talk about their new game, Surgeon Simulator 2. But first off, we're going to change up our format. So every episode now, um, I'm going to be joined by one guest to take a deep dive on two hot topics. So this episode, we're going to talk about uh, comics and literature, and we're going to talk about how we can divorce art from the creators, um, if they're sort of troubled creators, <coughs> JK. And uh, we're also going to talk about sort of the, the, the coming together, the meeting of comics and queer culture. So to do all of that, we've brought on our resident culture vulture. It's Matt Cameron. Hello. I mean, culture vulture is a, a really How nice way of saying uh, like just barely functional nerd. Yeah, sofa, sofa dweller is another one, but... I thought Culture Vulture maybe sounded a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> Although, to be honest with you, aren't we all, cult, aren't we all sofa dwellers at the moment? <laughs> like, it now feels like a, a long commute to go from like my bed to the couch via the kitchen. Hey, if you live in a house, you've got stairs to contend with as well. Right. I mean, two, two flights. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That suddenly becomes a massive ask now. <laughs> my, my, my calves are getting an amazing workout, if nothing else is. <laughs> Uh, to start us off, I want to talk about how we go about divorcing art from troubled creators. Now, the obvious example that we're currently living through is the J.K. Rowling, uh, her battle between uh, her turf views and basically common fucking decency. Um, and I think that for me is kind of like, I, I, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. And it is without taking away the impact of her sort of shitty statements it's 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 annoying because i'm i want to stay a harry potter fan but equally with so much being said and done uh to harm our trans brothers sisters it's difficult for me to sort of stay a fan and, and, and enjoy that work so i guess the, the sort of topic of discussion here is are you able and this i'm, I'm aware that obviously some comic uh, artists as well that sort of fall into this camp of being utter sort of horrible people but their work is still something you might want to enjoy um so is that possible can we do we have to sort of divorce these people or can we sort of carry on enjoying yeah, at least their art without a, the it's on. such a tough um and ultimately quite a personal decision as to whether you individually are able to separate the art from the artist and perhaps also weigh that against the severity of their um their problematic views um with comics there's some uh quite prolific or well-regarded creators whose views have become increasingly problematic over the years um you've got creators like uh john byrne who uh kind of redefined the fantastic four uh helped kind of co uh, relaunch the x-men um revamped She-Hulk for Marvel, uh, did the 1980s revamp of Superman for DC, like incredibly prolific writer and artist. Um, and then kind of with the dawn of the internet and increased 
access to communication with fans. It, some of his views turned out to be kind of uncomfortably right-wing. Um, mm. You've got um, Ethan Manskyver, who uh, is an incredibly talented artist, uh, uh, revamped uh, Green Lantern at DC in the early 2000s with the writer Jeff Johns, and he became... Um, a figurehead of the comics gate movement um which had some extremely right-wing views and he's now essentially ostracized himself from the the wider community uh creator community because it appears that no other creator wants to work with him so all his comics lately have been um self-published or um totally independent so it seems there a lot of people have not been able to separate the art from the artist because he keeps pushing out his arguably hateful rhetoric. Absolutely. And I, I think that's where we're ending up very rapidly uh, with J.K. Rowling is the fact that, I mean, you've seen over these past few weeks that nearly every major star of the Harry Potter movie series and also Fantastic Beasts as well have come out um, and sort of pushed back at the at the comments that she's making and supporting uh, trans fans, and also I believe most of her publisher staff now are refusing to work with her. So, well, one thing I learned this uh, over the course of the last week uh, was her pseudonym that she uses for the uh, Cormoran Strike novels, mm. uh, Robert Galbraith. Mm. Um, the American psychiatrist who came up with gay conversion therapy was called Robert Galbraith Heath. And that could just be a coincidence. Mm. Um, but it's it's a strange coincidence. Um, especially when you go back, what, seven, eight years? When it, whenever she decided uh, post-publication that uh, Dumbledore was gay and it was kind of yeah. revealed and received at the time reasonably positively, even if it was never present in the text in the way it perhaps should have been mm. um but the, there's no real gay or queer and definitely no trans representation in uh rowling's works mm. and then you, the, you kind of you couple that with the the share the the pseudonym sharing the name of uh yeah. the guy who came up with exactly. conversion therapy and it's it starts to raise a lot of uncomfortable questions it starts to build a picture of of something that you really don't want to be a fan of um and I think that's that's the issue here is like work that's set in stone is that good and done and locked in. But even then, looking back at it, as you say, with a modern lens, we're talking about work that had no LGBT representation. It had very, very sparse uh, suggestions around um, trans inclusion. Obviously, that the idea I of polyjuice potion um, was something that the trans community latched onto. But even then... Um, something that you take that hap that changes you then rubs off isn't the greatest of metaphors. Um, well, it's not, but I have experience. seen a really interesting interpretation of that where um, the, the actual dialogue and the pronoun use that uh, Rowling has Hermione use when she's mm. taken the Polyjuice Potion, she still refers to and clearly thinks of herself as female just in a male body at that point so perhaps accidentally there, there is definitely an understanding mm. that gender is not specific to your physical form 
even if that's perhaps not the interpretation that Rowling wanted yes. to present with that. It, but it, it's definitely there on a, on a mm. subconscious level that, you know, Hermione's gender is female, even when she was at that point in a male body. But then looking at it on a sort of wider scale, um, the Harry Potter books and films ha- had always been around uh, messages of acceptance, messages of, of not fitting in. Um, I, I don't think it was Rowling's fault particularly that there were very few um, actors of colour cast in any major role. Um, and where they were, it was sometimes a little bit clumsy. Um, but I think it, equally that sort of, there was a whole sort of kickoff, wasn't there, when the stage show came out, when they cast um, a, a female person of colour as the, the sort of older Hermione. Um, mm. And there was huge uproar from the community. Um, and then JK sort of came out as and sort of said, like, I never defined um, her her background in the books and her colour in the books. So, and she was suddenly mm. fine with that. So it's such a mixed bag of, of messages, um, but we can't ever get away from the, the sheer sort of fucking... A, a, abhorrent treatment of the trans community in the last mm. sort of 12 months and 24 months, particularly when the last sort of ditch attempt, instead of saying sorry, um, was to sort of take on um, survivors' kind of guilt and see if she can play the survivor card. Um, which yeah, that was that was oh, quite odd. awkward. And ultimately, it seems Rowling's um, discomfort comes from the actions of cisgender men and. Mm there seems to be an inability or an unwillingness to accept that trans women going into a female changing area are not cisgender men. You know, they they yes. do not think of or perceive themselves as men in any sense. Um, and, and if anything, the, it's, it's people, it's trans people going into these bathroom spaces or private spaces, whatever they are, they're the ones that are actually feeling... Uh, on edge and under attack mm. um, because they don't they have feelings of, of belonging um, or, or there's been plen- plenty of um, uh, recounts from uh, butch presenting lesbian women who've yeah. experienced transphobia because they are not perceived as women in whatever broad sense transphobes would like to define them in you know if if there's any kind of doubt of femininity they are attracting abuse when they're going into private spaces even if they're they're cisgender women so uh, this is this is always the concept that i sort of struggle with with uh, the arguments about the sort of the trans threat in bathrooms is actually again this is personal opinion and this is not a lived experience but it's it's surely the opposite way around. Um, I know anecdotally uh, trans friends and colleagues who say that they are the ones that feel more at threat from going and using a bathroom or a private space. They're very entitled to go and use, mm. um, and that's the sort of. But anyway, look, that's we're probably getting we're, a bit we're too straying deep into, a little I think into areas that we're not experienced mm. in. But yeah, in in terms of going back to separating mm. uh, art from artist, um, I think. I th- think it was daniel radcliffe's statement here um saying if if you found uh strength or compassion or uh relatability in those books that's still absolutely valid you can still take some 
solace in what you gained from those stories if you can separate it from yeah the creator in, and it's, it's, it's interesting what you said about the comic world um i imagine from what you said it was more the creative community that was shunning the create the other creators and i think that might be a case of not wanting to in, in the same way that we have the the various cast of films and stuff not particularly wanting to be associated or, or swept up with any of that negativity um i imagine in the comic world you could probably still read the material but maybe it's a case that you can't have other creatives working with you or, or getting published anywhere well no I, th I think it's it's a bit different so jk rowling uh you know she is the the sole uh creative force behind mm. harry potter even when other people have kind of uh written or co-written the movies it's based on her material you know all the background stuff to you know characters that are referenced in one paragraph or one page ever will have an entry on pottermore and that's probably from her notes as well so like it, it's entirely her creative world in comics or certainly in mainstream superhero comics from marvel or dc you know they're they're corporate owned shared world so when say ethan van skyver um kind of disgraced himself after working on green lantern there are still hundreds if not thousands of other green lantern stories by other creators that people can read like it, it's not as damaging to the whole of the property if one or two creators are awful mm. yeah absolutely and, and, and as you say being corporately owned Disney Marvel can just move that story away from that person and, and, and hand it over to somebody else mm. to sort of carry forward the legacy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it really is a personal choice, I think. I think the, the, the takeaway point of this discussion is it's very much a personal choice as to whether you can carry on and, and make that sort of separation. Um, I'm not necessarily a, a repeat reader of the books, but I do like to watch the films occasionally and I'm going to be interested to see what happens with the progress of the development of uh, the third Fantastic Beasts, which, of course, um, I believe they started filming before coronavirus hit. I think they were, they were definitely in pre-production. Mm. I'm not actually convinced that the camera started rolling. Um, obviously, also, if we're talking about and, like and other technical things happen, but... If we're talking about queerness and Potterverse characters, nobody radiates big bisexual energy like Newt Scamander. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, hugely. But these are characters, don't forget, that are fleshed out after the Dumbledore uh, retcon mm. issue. And of course, now we're through uh, the Fantastic Beast movie, we are now experiencing, uh, let's say, Dumbledore 2.0 or 2.69 or whatever, because that is the sort of the... <laughs> nice. Yes, thank you. Uh, the, uh, the the gay version of Dumbledore that she's sort of managed to sort of retcon. Well, slightly. there was the controversy when uh, the second Fantastic Beasts movie came out and they said uh, we're not addressing his uh, homosexuality. Yeah, I, I found that interesting. I, I was sort of, I'm sort of, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I like it subtle. That sounds weird, but m maybe I like, I, I prefer some subtlety, but I wasn't. Some nuance. Yeah, some nuance, some layers. I, I wasn't necessarily expecting the second Fantastic Beast to have Dumbledore sort of walking in with a fabulous sequin dress, tiara, um, and engage in some light fisting or something. It's it, <laughs> it's it's a very 
I didn't necessarily expect them to Expelly go straight for the sort of, <laughs> Yes, I did. I didn't expect them to go straight for uh, the sort of the like hugely flamboyant, stereotypical uh, sort of gayness. Um, you can see there's obviously the the uncomfortableness about the character having to battle um, Johnny Depp. Um, that, of course, is a whole other can of worms that are related <laughs> to that film. Um, and I think that sort of I was expecting it to play out over a longer period. So I, the, the, the sort of calls for like, oh, it wasn't very gay. It's like, wh- as someone that likes to beat the the authentic representation drum, I was kind of okay with it. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I can understand that it probably wasn't. So I think it will become relevant in uh, future Fantastic Beast films. Because uh, yeah. if you remember the uh, the flashback in the actual Potter novels where mm-hmm. he's having the, the, the duel, which is very clearly a, a lover's breakup with uh, Grindelwald. Yeah. Um, you know, that certainly that period, if not that specific event is going to have to be touched on over the course of the fantastic beasts films, because Grindelwald is like the main threat. Um, and, and, and let's so not forget as well, the, the films ha- are sort of set in like 1920s, 30s. So we're not, we're talking about an age where, um homosexuality was horrendously criminal um so it was all going to be fairly repressed perhaps yeah i mean uh, i've also seen some complaints from uh jewish viewers on how um the oh what was her name the uh the the love interest who's very clearly like coded as jewish who then kind of joins the very obviously fascist evil wizards in the second fantastic beasts movie oh the blonde one um, yeah um oh uh queenie goldstein um yes. uh played by alison sudol i think very good um and you know she is i mean the, the name is goldstein it's like any name ending in steen is immediately mm. coded as like a stereotypical jewish mm-hmm. name and then she ends up partnering with the very obviously fascist coded evil wizards it's it's uncomfortable Yes, and, there's, there's, and there's, it, it made a lot of Jewish viewers uncomfortable. It seems rightly uncomfortable, exactly. And, and, and look, there's a lot to unpack there, and, and I think this whole this whole piece very much is a, a reflection on how um, I guess it's it's a case of not liking your heroes or not meeting your heroes because a book that might have given you strength while growing while growing up suddenly takes on a different light, or um, something a whole sort of fan base that was sort of clamouring for this as a guiding light to see them through their their puberty suddenly sort of gets gets let down but i think it, mm. uh, to sort of summarize the, the daniel radcliffe message of if this art form in whatever form it is has given you strength has given you power um that hasn't been taken away that still stands mm. um and, and i think that's a good place for us to take a short break uh so we're gonna be back after these messages <laughs> Did you know that Gaming Magazine now has a Discord channel? Come and enjoy more chat, gossip and gameplay with your fellow gamers from around the world. Visit GamingMag.com forward slash Discord to get started. Welcome back. Now, moving on, I want to talk about comics, particularly the intersection between comics and queer culture, um, which I know is something that's very near and dear to your heart, Matthew. I mean, it, it's almost as if I've uh, just launched a, a column on uh, Gaming Mag. Uh, you have indeed. Looking ex- ex- 
explicitly these issues. Yes, Matthew's Comics yeah. Corner every Wednesday yeah. or Thursday, um, midweek, let's say, uh, depending <laughs> depending how the schedules go. Um, Ide- yeah. Ideally time for New Comics Day, which is uh, yes. Wednesday in the US and UK. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, so yeah, we're really excited to sort of obviously get that going. Uh, we know we're gaming magazine, but there is such a crossover of love and affection between gaming and comics. Um, and as we're going to talk about, uh, there'll be some examples of, of historical sort of stuff. And, and this will be a really good deep dive. I wanted to kick off uh, with my own um, experiences of comics and particularly my first real sort of comic experience when I started to have that kind of queer leaning, let's say. Um, and it's regarding uh, the X-Men um, <coughs> in sort of late 90s, about 97, 98, I think I picked it up. And it just had such, for me, X-Men just has like a real resonance with the queer experience, like the ideas of uh, mutant kinship, um, mm. outsiders, uh, outsiders of the sort of mainstream, but having that mainstream population basically fearing them. Um so the the interesting thing with the X-Men is it's always been an allegory for uh minorities and you can the the great thing about it as uh as a metaphor is whatever minority you may be part of you mm. can apply your experiences to it. So obviously in the in the 60s um it was seen as uh, reflective of the civil rights movement although awkwardly with an all-white cast um yes. and then as it evolved over the years and like side note we also need to remember like the x-men originally was fairly unpopular uh, it, it went into reprint issues after about issue 65 69 that kind of region um and it wasn't until giant size x-men won uh mm essentially rebooted it with a, a more international and diverse cast that really exploded in popularity um and, and that's when the the creators at the time uh primarily uh, writer chris claremont and artists dave stewart and then john byrne who we previously discussed um mm. started to to really lean into that that metaphor of uh being an oppressed minority and having your your gifts and your your light ignored by the wider world or, or sometimes and, outright hated and and there's those sort of amazingly passionate speeches that professor x gave every now and again which is sort of like about you're special you're strong you're unique and don't ever let them take that away from you mm-hmm. um and, and and as you say no matter which and it's not even necessarily a minority thing. It's about personal feelings. So like immigration, for example, was was huge, as you say, that certainly the second go around maybe was probably obviously a bit more diverse. But even body positivity, um, although we're obviously talking about superheroes, which by definition are sort of like ripped with muscles and curves and whatever else in sort of fabulous costumes, which again, gay coded, um, but also having sort of like the whole sort of beast side of things, like trying to get you. Especially to, when you think of the, the original beast is what we would, probably code as a bear in yeah gay male community uh, absolutely yeah 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 it, it, was, it was a bit of a shame when, when they sort of transferred that to the new new films uh getting sort of like nick holt to sort of come in and, and play the beast um i think kelsey Grammer, who was always a bit more bearry anyway um played a much better version granted older uh of beast but 
the the thing for me with with X Men, particularly obviously, with, they, they love a good metaphor, and they had like the legacy virus, I think it was called, um, which yeah, obviously that was, was a, 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 such a coded HIV AIDS uh, mm. metaphor, uh, and and it's just it just for me. So that that long story short, I suppose for for me, X Men was kind of my jumping on point. Not only for the comic world, uh, but proper reading of comics, I should say. But also that first kind of like it, positivity. Did you discover it via comics or via other comics or through the 90s cartoon series? Because that was like a huge onboarding for 90s a generation series. into what the X-Men is. I was, yeah. So, so me and comics, um, I didn't... Oh, I can't say that. So me, me and comics, I was very much a case of when I was little, little, it was Beano and Dandy for 20p. Good God, you'd never get anything for 20p. Yeah. No one get anything for 20p these days. Um, but, <laughs> and, so, and just for any um, for any American uh, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, listeners, yeah. Uh, Beano and Dandy are essentially the UK's equivalent of, I guess, Archie comics. They're, they're comedy, yeah. um, mostly kind of slapstick yeah um, sort of vignette stories as well weren't they yeah yeah um so i had the early archie kid. not riverdale archie not riverdale hot archie no mm. um and then we i think i seeged then into watching rather than reading so i did a lot of watching of batman was my big one um weirdly i liked dc as a kid but i like marvel now um and then I, then yes, it, it was those Saturday morning uh, cartoons, particularly the X Men, that sort of really dragged me back into comics again. And I think I, I remember you probably know it better, but I remember a cover of um, Colossus holding, I think it was Cyclops aloft with one arm, um, surrounded by really fabulous women, all looking fabulous. And that was such a gay image as a cover of an X Men, um, like. A sort of a relatively twinky guy being held aloft by this absolute sort of like Adonis of a guy um, surrounded by fabulous women. That was like the most coded kind of thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I so think it was holographic as well, I come to think of it. So it was like a that disco. That wouldn't surprise me. So in, in the 90s, <laughs> like Marvel, in yeah, Marvel in particular was notorious for uh, variant and enhanced covers so mm. you would get foil covers or lenticular covers or um covers with little trading card sized uh, holograph um images kind of like stuck on the front or card stock so like you turn over the the cover and it'll have something cut out so you see half the image underneath and then it changes to, you see the full image and it has a bit of a reveal and basically gimmicky stuff so they could hike the price on the comics because the 90s was a, ma a massive mm. uh, speculator boom for collectors but um as part of that speculator boom marvel did um a few what they called swimsuit specials and they were kind of riffing off sports illustrated in the us yep. and they would uh, the first two or three were overwhelmingly uh, the female characters so they could draw like rogue or mary jane from spider-man or uh, wasp from the avengers in like you know bikini babe outfits but the um the, i think it was the the third or fourth one because i can't remember exactly how many they did um an editor called um christian cooper who was the gentleman who was being um profiled in central park recently that uh, just before the uh, Black Lives oh, Matter, yes, yeah, um, the Birdwatch protests kicked off. Yeah, the but yeah, exactly the Birdwatcher. He yeah. he was uh, the editor at Marvel at the time, um, 
he put forward the whatever at that point the, the latest swimsuit special was and it was mm. all or nearly oil nearly all um male characters and it kind of slipped under higher editorials radar so they ended up putting out this beefcake <laughs> magazine of marvel superheroes like Amazing. in swim trunks uh flexing on the beach being <laughs> exceedingly homoerotic did you know uh, sidebar um did you know that the tom of finland uh comics well i say comics they're more sort of obviously artistic style drawings um which are the oh, no no he, he did actual actual comics um oh, he, yeah. i mean they're mostly comic strips yes. and obviously you know erotica so uh, yes exactly yeah yes but uh, but, did, but yeah the, 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 did you they, know they, they were, were drawn um characters. using the outline and tracings of superhero bodies as a way of starting them off when they first were yes figuring it out that I, I found that mm. hilarious that how sort of like that sort of really is the reach in the sort of that that body shape that people were drawing for superheroes then became the fetishized uh erotica for tom of finland anyway that's mm. just my thing what was your uh, i'm curious what was your sort of comic uh my first comic sort of thing so along along the same lines, um, British humour comics when I was really young, uh, although I was more into Buster and Wizard and Chips uh, than Beano and Dandy, uh, which are both uh, you know, sadly defunct now. They were published by Fleetway. Um, and then I got into uh, the Marvel UK titles, which I didn't know at the time, but they were all reprints of American stuff. But because the British comic model was weekly publication rather than monthly with the US, you would get one US title split over, uh, sorry, one US issue split over three UK issues. So they, they mm. became anthologies. So you'd have um, the Transformers comic would have uh, eight pages of the US Transformers comic, it eventually introduced some UK original Transformers stories and then have backups of American Marvel books like Machine Man or anything that was vaguely robot-y to fit with the Transformers theme. And then from there, I got into actual American comics that I was just picking up secondhand. And I think the first two American comics that I ever bought were from a rundown market stall and they were the Steve Englehart uh, run on Green Lantern. Um, like hardcore comics fans will know exactly what I'm referring to there. <laughs> and the first issue of Power Pack, which was a Marvel comic uh, with like actual, not so most Marvel superheroes start out as teenagers, but Power Pack was like actual children getting superpowers. Oh, that's interesting. And when, like when, when I was eight or nine, that, that's, that's a great hook to yeah. see, you know, actual uh, you know, characters your age being superheroes. And a bit like, the jo weird a thing bit like Joe Ninety. Um, that kind of passed me by. I, I caught reruns of um, yeah, I'm, I'm Thunderbirds not that and Captain Scarlet, but <laughs> <laughs> just for the record. Um, but yeah, but I never caught the. I, I never saw, or if I did say, I don't. I don't mm. remember them. Uh, the reruns of Joe Ninety. But um, the the interesting thing with Power Pack in particular is like that actually still holds up. That original run from the eighties that went into the early maybe mid 90s um it was written by um written and drawn by june brigman and uh, louise simonson and um although it's kids are superheroes it's not written as a kiddie comic book you know it, it's it's firmly embedded in 
the wider Marvel universe. They meet the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and Spider-Man and so on. And it it's treated seriously, like as seriously as the X-Men, uh, just with a younger cast. And that that's, mm. I, I think, really powerful. Like, kids are smarter than we think. And when media doesn't talk down to them, they respond really well. Yeah, what was that? What's the big lesson that somebody did? Um, I think it was Russell T. Davis and Doctor Who and Stephen Moffat, actually, around the whole of that sort of issue around those. Obviously, this has gone off topic and I apologise, but the uh, the adults in the room were complaining about how complicated the plots were um, of sort of twisty, turny, timey-wimey kind of stuff. But then um, they sort of both fired back. Like, certainly Stephen Moffat, he has young kids. Um, like, he had an eight-year-old at the time. And if he can understand it, then that's all he's worried about. Um, hmm. yeah it, it's interesting and that in itself can link back to comics uh, the writer Grant Morrison is uh, kind of infamously quoted um, as saying like you can give a, a convoluted superhero comic to a kid and they'll accept it and you give the same comic to an adult and they'll be like well well, who's refilling the Batmobile's tyres and uh, <laughs> yes like who, who, who's who's you know, stitching Superman's cape, and like nobody is. It's it's fiction, but kids get that, and yeah. in a weird way, adults tend not to. They want every bit of minutia explained. They're more detail orientated. Mm. Um, cool. The interesting thing I always find about sort of comics and, and is their history, um, particularly their sort of queer history, um, going all the way back to, uh, I believe, Wonder Woman in like the nineties and thirties and forties where no 1940 yeah first, first appearance okay cool where, where there's a lot of celebration of if you read it right uh s&m and same-sex bonding um with a lot of sort of the amazonians and the shackles and chains between women and stuff well yeah so wonder woman's creator william Moulton marston um he was in a polyamorous relationship with his wife and their female lover um he was an early what i guess what you'd call radical feminist uh, he had certain ideas about how um society would be bettered under matriarchal rule uh, which we see reflected in the amazonian society yeah. but um the snm stuff it's it's kind of been i almost want to say misunderstood over the years because uh, it wasn't the lesbian amazon's going around having a bunch of kinky sex um there was actually uh quite a lot of philosophy behind it um he wrote about the ideas of loving submission um which is 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 to this day quite a radical idea but then once marston was off the book because you know again corporate comics you know the mm. company owns the character even though he created it um uh, national publications as it was at the time uh, which eventually became DC uh, wanted to shy away from the sect but then as you get into the 50s uh, you had a uh, psychiatrist called uh, Frederick Wortham who led a kind of pogrom against comics thinking they were kind of corrupting the youth uh, he mm. was he was infamously um, uh, behind the the idea that Batman and Robin were lovers um it, it turned out in, in relatively recent years, actually, that he'd um, uh, faked a lot of his research. Um, he he did a case study with like a tiny number of uh, participants and falsified some of the data. And it, it's all. Yeah, no surprise. Um, but that 
um, that book he wrote, Seduction of the Innocent, uh, it it really fired up American society, and they, mm. you know, comic books were the the devil of the day. In the same way that we've later seen like scary movies or video games become, you know, the the scapegoat for society's ills. And it's but, interesting um, that those sort of scapegoats are the ones that LGBT people uh, latch onto. And I think it's because yeah. it's seen and as those being outside of the mainstream. Yeah, very much so. Um, but then to bring that back to, to Wonder Woman, they, they toned down any hint of that uh, sexuality, those ideas of loving submission, of um, female empowerment, because it was antithetical to the societal mood at the time. And some, some creators in, in more recent years have tried to get back to that, but it, it kind of ripped the the heart out of the character. It'd be like trying to revamp Superman without Krypton. Yeah. You know, it's a fundamental part of the, the character's backstory. Yeah, and that's that's sort of something that obviously is... That whole sort of segment of time where people were trying to explore new things it's, it's not obviously just doesn't just the 50s into 60s was such a progressive sort of space where society was moving really quickly but then obviously certain people and certain tastes whether it is the mary whitehouse over here sort of more 70s and 80s um but then also particularly in america is with the various codes that comics had to sign up to and, and everything else that suddenly meant that writers had to get a lot more um sort of sidesteppy and a little bit more well, it, it pretty much it pretty much killed off the um, superhero genre for about mm. 10, 15 years, and it almost killed off the comics industry. Mm. Um, you go back to the 50s, and there were publishers like EC, um, which did horror comics, things like uh, Tales from the Crypt, Tales mm. from the Crypt. Um, and because of the comics code, which was industry adopted as uh, as a way to kind of get the authorities off the back they were saying like look we'll, we'll self-police we'll make sure comics are fine for kids um but the, all those uh horror comics anything that was considered you know unsuitable for you know the the darling impressionable youth uh was was killed off so and and that impacted a lot of publishers and a lot of um genres so i mean for for superheroes it, it stripped back to pretty much Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Green Arrow. Wow. And which then had, it was in the, yeah. the the Silver Age, um, which was kind of heralded in by a DC editor called uh, Julia Schwartz, uh, which brought in revamped versions of the Golden Age, which, so like 1930s and 40s characters, uh, so Green Lantern, Flash, all got rebooted with broadly similar concepts, but new characters under the masks. And that, and that was when you started getting the rebirth of superheroes. Yeah. And then in 1979, obviously, um, according to my research, I'm not, not going to claim I'm as half as nerdy as you. Uh, but <laughs> ni- 1979 saw, obviously, North Star, um, which is probably one of the most prominent uh, homosexual characters, start to be introduced. But again, because of that code, they had to be very tiptoeing around. So he couldn't be proudly out, but there was plenty of hints. That was it, was... it was never the intent when he was first introduced for him Mm. to be a a gay character in the 80s there was a marvel editor i think it was jim starlin um uh, i'm sure the internet will correct me if i'm wrong um (laughs) who 
said there there are no gay characters in the Marvel universe. Um, and there was a an issue of Incredible Hulk at around the same time, uh, mm-hmm. where this is one of the periods where uh, Bruce Banner didn't have any control over the Hulk, and uh, while he was kind of wandering around as a hobo, uh, stayed at a YMCA and almost gets raped in the shower. Um, it, it's it's really uncomfortable stuff at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and North Star in particular ends up uh going through a few changes at one point um it's thought he's actually an elf rather than a mutant or he's half elf and half mutant um and there's all these things that kind of through the late 80s going into the 90s starts a hint that he's stereotypically gay um because he's you know a a pointy-eared haughty guy who in his civilian um guys was always drawn wearing quite fashionable clothes um and then when he actually does come out it's uh, a really really awkward issue which i'm actually planning on writing about for comics corner so i won't go into too much depth okay, on that cool. just yet i was about to say what that was but i'm gonna okay i'll skirt around to that uh but yes that <laughs> what, it, coming out sort of wasn't done particularly uh tastefully um then fast forwarding, obviously, we had um, sort of in our little history lesson, we had Apollo and Midnighter as the first sort of mainstream gay kiss, I believe. It depends how you want to count mainstream. Yeah, this is where we get a bit Fairly blurred, mainstream. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so Apollo and Midnighter were essentially pastiches of Superman and Batman, respectively, mm-hmm. introduced in a comic called Stormwatch and then later. Um, moved over to become main characters in a spin-off book called or successor comic called The Authority. Um, the 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 initial like lazy joke was oh Batman and Superman are lovers. Um, but they're actually handled quite well through most of their appearances. Um, and that they'd gotten their powers through um, shady government experimentation um, with Apollo ending up with essentially the Superman suite of powers, you know, flight, invulnerability, et cetera, et cetera. And Midnighter uh, being almost a slightly cybernetic Batman. He had brain implants that made him able to win any fight before it even started because he could predict mm. every opponent's methods and stuff. So he, he was like the gritty, angry, street-level character, and Apollo was meant to be this, like, shining sun god. Um, but they'd escaped the facility where they'd been experimented on and given the powers. And when we first meet them, they're uh, essentially homeless superheroes, um, but very clearly in a relationship with each other. Mm. And that's been pretty much consistent in all their appearances since. And then in... This was in the late 90s, so things were starting to improve in broader mainstream representation. And then in 2012 was the big one, which was North Star and Kyle's marriage. Um, which was uh, literally, I think it was like a day or two or very close to after uh, New York City, uh, sorry, New York State um, approved their same-sex marriage rules. Um, And this was kind of like, I I think Marvel even sent out like save the date cards and stuff. It was this huge marketing exercise. They'd done done save the date uh, marketing for previous uh, character weddings because it's a wedding issues tend to, sell more they're seen as collector's items even though typically weddings in superhero comics don't last because 
they want the characters to revert to the status quo. Um, yeah. But you saw the same when Superman and Lois Lane got married or um, Spider-Man and Mary Jane or Storm and Black Panther. Interesting. But it, it's interesting that sort of they have that, that they went to town on that marketing to make sure that they... And, and that they, they gave it, it equal... Yeah, they gave it equal footing to previous sort of straight stunt wedding stories that they'd done. Mm. Mm. Which is great as a, as a sort of like starting that process of normalization. Mm. Which brings us up to the present day. Now, you said something interesting when I talked about Apollo Midnight being the first kiss and we said mainstream. We're now in a position where the there was obviously a, a lot of bubbling around um, of indie titles back then, but now we're in a position where there are in the current day, there, there are genuinely out and proud, fully fledged gay comics. Um, and you wrote about one recently for one of your comics corners, I believe. Yeah, so uh, we kick things off with um, an interview with Joe Glass, who's the creator of an indie comic called The Pride, um, which is uh, a, a team of all LGBTQ plus characters. Um, and in, in some cases he's done uh, as Midnighter and Apollo did, you know, they're uh nods to more entrenched mainstream characters so his uh superman avatar is a character called fabman and he's you know the you know big broad-chested uh kind of corn seed kind of looking yeah superhero but then it, it kind of goes into more um i almost want to say community in joke so he's you know what his his muscle character um is uh, a character called Bear, who's a bear in both the, the gay slang sense and the sense of he's a giant walking man bear. Um, <laughs> but the, the underground or the independent side of comics has always mm. been uh, far ahead of where the the mainstream corporate-owned comics are because you know they're not having to worry about uh, public backlash or shareholders or any of those kind of... Um, quote-unquote big picture concerns mm. i mean you go back to the uh i think the first issue came in the late 70s there was an american underground comic called gay comics um and it featured creators like um howard cruz who went on to do the the brilliant uh, graphic novel stuck rubber baby which explored um sexuality and race and uh societal tensions in the deep south in the the 60s um but you had all these um, independent comics that weren't afraid to show, you know, same-sex love um, long before the mainstream latched on. And this kind of brings us full circle back to games because uh, in the same way that indie comics aren't afraid to um, show LGBT... Is that Rain? Uh, yeah, so I'm in an attic room <laughs> and uh, it's just started raining. Okay, so apologies to listeners uh, in the north, but, <laughs> but you might be getting some interference in the shape of rain. Um, I'll just talk louder. It, it brings us full circle anyway, back to back to games, because uh, as we all know, the, the indie game scene in in our world is where LGBT characters and LGBT authentic representation gets played out because they're not scared and they want to tell a good story and, and they don't have the studios leaning over them going, oh, you can't do that and you can't do that. And it's exactly the same as in the comics. Um, and I think that sort of does bring us full circle to sort of keep us on topic, at least, about being a gaming podcast, about 
how comics and games really do sort of fit together hand in glove yeah i mean that's always been the case as well like one of the things i uh, i laid out in the first column is like as soon as video games started to enter the home as opposed to the arcade and started becoming mainstream entertainment products that one of the main places they advertised was comic books um you would even have early uh I, I guess you'd call them crossovers where um, Marvel did a, a really interesting one, I think, called uh, Quest Probe, which was a series of graphic narrative adventure games in 83, 84 um, for like some of the earliest home computing systems. And they would do a comic book adaptation of, of each of the games that came out. And this is like, long before we start having things like the recent Horizon Zero Dawn like comic book adaptation of the game. This is like a, an, a fundamental early interlinking of the comic book industry and the gaming mm. industry. And that's really interesting. And, and, and obviously going, ba going back the other way, uh, now we have like, I think it, a day doesn't go by without some new video game coming out that links into a comic book property. Um, so obviously the full spread of Marvel and DC and, and all the other sort of bits in there as well. And, and also extrapolating that further, we're going down a path where you've got one toy company doing a story about a comic company in a video game like Lego, for example. So they're <laughs> very much intertwined. I, I knew I'd get a Lego one in there somewhere. It has to happen. <laughs> um, just Amy's not here to talk about Dragon Age. Thank fuck. So we, we, we won't have to talk about that one. Um, hi, Amy. <laughs> The other one is obviously you mentioned comics uh, playing off of games. We can't over overwatch, overlook, overwatch uh, the comics from Overwatch, which was obviously where uh, they've done their various retconning of, of their queer characters as well through the medium of yeah, comics. and we, we've we've talked about we've talked about this on on previous episodes as well. Um, that, I, I find that quite an interesting tactic on Blizzard's part because Overwatch. The, the current Overwatch, obviously Overwatch 2 has been announced as having a story mode, but Overwatch 1, you know, all the narrative is siloed off elsewhere. Mm. Um, if you don't go and seek out those comics, if you don't go and read those comics, you would have no real idea from the game that, you know, Trace is a lesbian or Soldier 76 is gay or yeah. that Zarya is at least perceived by a certain segment of the fandom as being trans. Absolutely. And, it, yeah. and, it, and it's and, interesting and it's, how comics have stepped up to be used as a resource to tell those stories. Yeah, but I, I think it's... In, in Overwatch's case, it's something that I think they do need to, to better merge. They need to represent what they're doing in the comics in the game itself, rather than treating the comics as uh, a secondary medium where yes. they can kind of hide away their dirty little secrets and i think we've, we've said it before i think um that this is going to be interesting to see how they handle considering overwatch is played in so many territories around the world um it is going to be interesting to see how they handle their queer characters mm. in overwatch but we're too. seeing more triple a triple a studios um introduce the queer characters like the, the last of us 2's just launched and obviously you've got ellie as a mm -hmm. you know a by by this point in her story, like an openly, you know, lesbian character. Absolutely. Um, so look, love comics, love games, 
Um, and there is definitely the crossover between the two. And I think it's a fabulous thing. We're really happy to be talking about it. Uh, I think it's a great message for Pride as part of our Digi Pride. Um, a quick shout out while I'm talking about Digi Pride, go and check out gamingmag.com. We've got three months of amazing activity going on. Uh, and a big thank you to our sponsors, Sold Out Games and Bossa. Matt, thank, thank you. you. Yes, thank you indeed. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Um, that's been our, Absolutely our no sort problem. of an exciting sort of first Any, any chance to, to rabbit about comics history for half an hour? Yes, exactly, or, or, or closer to an hour. Um, and <laughs> so coming up after the break, uh, I'm going to talk to Mark Pick from Bossa about Surgeon Simulator 2. Uh, but I'm going to say goodbye to Matt, and we'll see you all after the break. Bye. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm joined by my special guest this week, uh, Mark Pick from Bossa. How are you? I am good. I'm very, very good. Uh, it is a very rainy day in London, so we're just getting through yes, that. How are you getting on? It, you all right? Yeah, it's an amazing British summer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. As well as being stuck indoors and everything else that we're having to contend with at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's all we need. Um, but, you know, lockdown hasn't been too bad. I think certainly down here we've been pretty lucky over the last few months, yeah. so... Can't complain about a little bit of rain, and at least it means we're trapped indoors finishing this game off as well. True. <laughs> There's no excuse to get down the pub or <laughs> yes, get distracted indeed. with anything else. Definitely not <laughs> the pub. Now, kick us off. Um, I like to start by inviting our guests uh, to introduce yourself to our listeners. Cool. So I am Mark Pick. I'm currently a senior producer at Bossa Studios. So I've been working in games for about six, I think it's about six years now. It's quite quite a while. Um so my first gig in games was I was working on the Plague Inc. mobile game. Um, so I was working at kind of a very small startup on that for about three years. I did Plague Inc. I did the PC, Xbox expanded versions. Plague Inc. evolved um, and kind of ran that, the mobile side of that as well alongside it. Um, following that, I went to a company called Preloaded where I did more kind of client facing games um, in the educational sector. So we work with places like mm-hmm. uh, the BBC, uh, McDonald's, various museums. Um, it was a really, really cool, cool uh, place. Kind of a mix of like physical installations as well as like digital games. That was that was a lot of fun. Like kind of really, awesome. really honed my craft there and kind of ran a lot of different size projects. And then most recently, I've been at Bossa for going on three years now, um, two and a half to three years. So we are working on Surgeon Simulator Two, which is the game I've been working on the whole time I've been here. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that a little bit uh, throughout the rest of the podcast, but that is due to launch at the end of August. Uh, so yeah, that is the big focus for me right now. Absolutely. Well, um, my next question obviously is the big news is, but you stole on that <laughs> one. So the news is uh, that <laughs> the hilarious uh, Surgeon Simulator is coming back for a sequel. Yes, indeed. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, can you describe to us what Surgeon Simulator is? Yeah, so we had the big... The big, big announce on Saturday at the PC Gaming Show, um, mm-hmm. which was a lot of fun to do. But yeah, just to remind everybody what, what it is um, for anyone who's not familiar with Surgeon Simulator. So Surgeon Simulator came out in 2013. It was originally an idea that actually came from a game jam um, that four guys at Bossa did. And in a nutshell, you're basically controlling one hand performing surgery on our infamous patient, Bob, in a series of kind of escalating medical procedures he's a very unlucky uh, very yeah he just doesn't have a great great life this guy bob um so you the, the, the gag of the game is basically this hand is notoriously very very difficult to control and um, we've got some 
pretty chaotic physics in there and what should be you know the simplest of things in real life like picking up a scalpel or a pen or a hacksaw is very very difficult difficult to do um, anyone who's played a game like co-op will kind of get the uh, the feel of the game so that did very very well uh, sold millions of copies it was a big hit on youtube um, streamers kind of took to it and the big reason for that was it was just kind of it was chaos. It was it was fun to watch. It was fun to play. It was fun when things were going wrong. Um, it was probably the furthest thing away from like a fully accurate medical simulator as you could ever imagine. And I think that kind of just contributed to the to the whole kind of real gallows like humor appeal of the game. Um, ported it to kind of every platform under the sun, really. Um, so yeah, seven years on, um, we've 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 ported it to a lot of places. We did a VR version, and you know now is the time really to kind of return to it and do a sequel um, in twenty twenty. That's where we are today. Absolutely. And can you tell me then what's new about Surgeon Simulator 2? What's the sort of stuff? Yeah, so um, obviously we spoke about this quite a lot at the PC Gaming Show, but the big thing for us is like, Boss has never done a sequel before. This is the first time, I think, in Boss's whole history, like long before I joined, that we've done one. And yeah. the vibe of Boss has always been like, we, we don't just want to be one of these companies where we just do like the update a year later. And it's like, here's the same game, but slightly yeah. updated engine and a few more levels. And we always said we had to have like a bloody good reason to, to, do, it, to do a sequel. So we always had this vision of um, multiplayer surgery. That was always the thing we wanted to do. And we've got this kind of tech department at Boss that really, um, it was only like in the last three years that we kind of figured out how to do that and to get the physics simulated in a way that it could be fun. So it is now multiplayer surgery, but probably the biggest change in terms of gameplay is you're now not just one hand, you're moving around on two foot, two feet, I should say, um, which probably isn't the most exciting feature in most other games, but this is a radical change. And you are moving around a medical facility um, with multiple surgeons, there's four of you, up to four at any one time, or you can play on your own. Um, there's a whole variety of new mechanics and props and machinery and you know any kind of surgery contraption you could ever dream of in the game to mess around with. Um, so it's really got kind of more of a, I don't want to say like immersive sim, but that kind of vibe of exploring mm. a facility and creative puzzle solving and using physics to your advantage while still keeping that real like wacky, chaotic humor that is the thing that really made the first one be the success that it was. Um, so yeah, it's a huge like change from the original and honestly, like we've been like, we're proud of what we've done, obviously, but we've been so nervous like over the last few months as we, as we approach the announce, because I'm sure like anyone listening to this, who's done anything creative before you kind of think like, are, are we, are we mental? Like, are we, is this what people want? Is this kind of the right direction to take it in? Cause it is so bold and different. And yeah, so far, I mean, reception's been great. Like we're we're pretty chuffed as a team this week. We've been loving reading awesome. everything. It's been great. I think it's always tricky, isn't it, when you have a sort of creative baby that you think you're onto a winner, yeah. but then you go through the processes of of developing it and you suddenly start to doubt yourself mm. because if you spend three years with something, you've picked it apart and put it back together a thousand and one times. And then you're sort of in that position, as you say, of like, are people going to like yeah. it? And you're starting to, because you're hypercritical, I imagine. God, yeah. Every time the little thing, and, and then you're putting it out there in the world, and nobody's going to see that. They're all going to mm. focus on the sort of shiny, amazing, sort of physics y stuff. But you know that little annoying thing's there. <laughs> yeah. Just bugging I mean, yeah, I yeah, I can totally relate to that. I think um, like that, that's one of the hard parts of game development is. You know, we, we, we've always done user tests and like from, from I think Sprint 1, like back in 2017, um, we were getting people in mm. and playing like the the most wireframe of wireframes and just getting some feedback. And, 
you can't be sensitive to what they say, right? Like feedback's feedback, and the user, yeah. the user's right at the end of the day. You got to listen to it. But um, we were we, so we watched the stream together on um, on Saturday night when we announced it, and. After that, we had Jack Sepler guy and a few of his mates, um, like big, big YouTuber. They mm-hmm. kind of had exclusive um, access to stream it after. And so we quite often do this, like we'll have a few few beers and we'll kind of watch the the footage. And I kind of had to say it to my team, like, because they were all in the chat and they're saying, oh God, that, that lighting asset's broke. He's moving too slow. That bug's <laughs> doing my head in. And, and you kind of have to say like, right, it's, it's Saturday night. Let's celebrate how well it's doing. Yeah. And we can sort that on Monday. Um, you've, you've got to you've got to celebrate your successes, but at the same time, like I think Absolutely. you know, a methodical Absolutely. team is a good team at the same time. You've got to kind of keep striving yeah. for the next big thing to fix. Now, when, when Surgeon Simulator, the first one came back out, uh, came out, sorry, in 2013, uh, physics games were fairly new. Mm. Um, but now obviously we've moved through the process of like having Goat Simulator moving out. I mean, bosses like I am mm. red even. Um, so what was the pressures now of creating a physics game that's in a fairly crowded field? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question, actually. Um, and by the way, like all cracking games, the ones you've listed, like we've played all those yeah, as a like, kind, of, kind of inspiration. I'd also put like Gang Beasts in there, Human Fall Flat, um, mm-hmm. Overcooks. I know that's not really a physics game, but that kind of chaos, like there's a lot of, there's a kind of DNA yeah. that goes through all these games. I th- and I think Overcook probably was a good example of how to sort of like do multiplayer as well because mm. they really nailed the the ability to sort of co-op yeah. uh, with that game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think like all those games you've mentioned, the one thing that I think ties them all together, and I would definitely say this about Surgeon Sim 1, is you still have fun when, when you're not necessarily winning the level. Like a lot of the fun comes from either the interactions yeah. you have with, with your teammates or things messing up or like you have a plan and it doesn't play out the way you think it's going to. Um, and that can create just fun and laughter and interesting moments. And when we were like, when we kind of sat in the boardroom like three years ago, when when me and Nate, who, who's our, our one of our senior designers, like when we came in to kind of like um, to head up the project, we said like, what what is it about Surgeon One that we want to replicate? And that was the thing we kept going back to was like this this thing that chaos is not. It's the opposite of like a Naughty Dog game, right? It's like they're very choreographed and you have to kind yeah. of play it the way it's intended. This is not that. It's it's a it's a sandbox. It's very, very silly and that's good. Um, and where we kind of got to with that was like that that was the real inspiration that brought the multiplayer in because we thought if you can, you know, laugh at Jack Septic Eye playing with it on YouTube, then why would you not have three of your mates or three randoms in front of you any one time doing that same thing in real time? Um, I think the other thing that we wanted to do as well is I think... In terms of content, like speaking more about Surgeon Sim 1 here, you do kind of play through that. And like once you've played, I think it was like seven operations, once you got through those, like that is kind of it. So we've added the creation uh, mode to Surgeon 2 where you can go in and like build your own levels again with with mates as well or on your own. Um, so again, Boss has got a pretty good history of doing this stuff, like Worlds Adrift, which was the last big game that Boss was working on. That had this whole island creator where you can build your own islands and upload them to the to the world. So we wanted it was kind of spiritual successor to that, um, but it's very it's it's almost like Minecrafty, like kind of a first person. Um, there's a there's a big like circuit system there where you can create logic that ties levels and rule sets together and so on. Um, kind of inspired by Mario Maker and Dreams more recently as well. Um, and that was the the vision we had was that you could kind of have three mates jump in as a four on whatever night you want to play together, and you say right, let's go and quick play and see what crazy chaotic 
surgery contraption rooms people have made and let's just fire up 10 and see what we get and just play through it randomly and constantly be surprised by the new content that people are making as well so I think longevity is maybe like a word that we wanted to bring to that whole kind of genre of games like it's not just something you'll play for a weekend and say you know that was great and we had a laugh but I'm I'm kind of done now it's something you can keep going back to like week on week and just seeing what new content's there and just enjoying that content as as a group of mates. It's interesting of late how sort of user-driven content has started to play a bigger part Mm. in games. So users get actually sort of like to get hands-on and design their levels, design things, and then put it out there into the world, let people play it. And I I found that was really interesting. And and when that was announced for this, I was it's suddenly like, yes, I can see, I can see how that's going to really benefit. I can see how, um, I imagine people would be setting each other challenges even designing Mm. a level and saying right you come and play in this level um so i can see how that really does add that level of sort of longevity Mm. as you say to it yeah and also which is great yeah you see like i mean you look at the the game like the games landscape more generally and like like PUBG, one of the biggest games in the world it came from a mod right Mm -hmm. like gary's mod is another really good example of you know huge huge games that are making people millionaires and making lots of players very very happy that kind of stood on the shoulders of competitors or other games that have came before and I've always been like a big fan of, of, and what one of the reasons I love dreams so much is anything that can give people like an accessible way of like getting stuck into just fiddling around with being creative without having to yeah. do you know like weeks and weeks of Unity tutorials and learn how to to write C sharp or whatever. Um, I mean, I, I yeah. can't code code to save my life, and I have tried, but I can like spend you know an hour or so in our tool with a mate um, and pull together something like half decent even if it is just like a silly challenge or something as you say um yeah like like anything like that i'm really like personally quite keen for just kind of making the barrier of entry to games a little bit easier and making it just a little bit less elitist in a way kind of just leveling the playing field a little bit mm. and yeah it's an interesting how sort of it's, it's almost you'd argue it's a, a recruitment tool mm. um it's interesting, obviously, with, as you say, with Dreams is is fantastic. Mm. And some of the stuff that's just coming out of it already is, is amazing. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, this is um, the cast of characters. Um, what stood out to me when I was looking at this is the diversity of that. Mm. So having um, four characters, two of them identify women and three being people of color, what was the motivation behind the sort of diversity choice, if you yeah, like? Yeah, so the main thing really was Surgeon 1 is it's a game set in Britain like it's set in this um this county called Barnardshire and that came from the team who worked on that game who were all kind of British and spent the whole lives growing up in Britain and when we kind of like very early in the project when we're talking about like what does what is this game and what do we want it to mean to people like we wanted it to reflect Britain as it is today which is a very you know diverse multicultural country right it's not just it's not the in-betweeners it's not four white dudes like having a laugh together like that like that is just not what Britain is so for us it was just a no-brainer to reflect like the country we live in and the country that continues to be represented from Surgeon 1. Um, I think more generally as well like kind of going out of the story in the universe a bit um, it's an online game and we hope that people will feel comfortable kind of going online and playing not only with the friends but with with you know strangers online as you do with a lot of other games and it was really important for us to be able to have 
characters where you know if it's not exactly you you could kind of find something within yourself across across the cast that is there and we want to keep you know expanding the cast post-launch like one of the one of the, the ideas we've got post-launch you want to keep adding, adding kind of characters and learn a little bit more about their stories kind of um in the months after we launch as well so yeah it was it was super important to us i'm sure like anyone listening to this podcast can relate like representation of people who are maybe not the people who are tr- have been represented in games um in, in in at least across its history right it's something that i think you know a lot more companies could be could be doing and just making an effort to you know you know appeal to as many people as we can yeah we'd, we'd obviously by definition touch on it a lot regarding mm. obviously lgbt but also diversity as a whole and i think any game that goes out of its way just sort of show more diversity uh to really sort of encourage people into the game by reflecting the modern societies i think is a really good thing mm. um so that's great i mean interesting to hear about the potential to add new characters um obviously in a game that's basically just <laughs> a hand um it, it's tricky to maybe understand people's backstories yeah. so it is difficult maybe to tease out some of the more um societal um <laughs> diversity stuff like lgbt yeah, it's very yeah, difficult yeah. obviously to to represent that straight away um so I'm just I, I guess the question is do do we get to learn anything more about the characters? Are there any plans maybe for any kind of um narrative developments or that, anything? Yeah. Or is it very much just a case of here's some people and there's a hand? That is a very good question. Um very, very good question actually, because it's something we we we've, we've talked about a lot, like early in development. And one of the things that that appeal like what like I didn't work on Surgeon Simulator one to to be clear like that was kind mm. of r- like run before I joined Bossa but one of the things I loved about that game and kind of elevated it among among a lot of other games in that field was there was a lore and there was a universe and there was like a backstory and Easter eggs and things to explore and find it wasn't just clumsy physics one oh one like that it was elevated I think by having you know phone numbers that you can dial and post-it notes you can read and you know endless like um, online like blog posts of the characters and things like that to dig into and you know I love that stuff as a fan and we really wanted to keep that stuff going in Surgeon 2 so we have got a full kind of narrative team who's been looking at that stuff um, I can't tell you who they all are yet because we have more news about that coming in future but we've had um, we've had Holly Pickering who worked on Ether One on it for now we've got Nate we've got Luke who is the uh, lead designer of the original game who's kind of like keeping what we call the bossiverse going through to Surgeon 2 mm-hmm. Um so it's not so much about those four characters that you play of and their stories, although it is important that you understand their motivations for being at this medical facility. And we do dig into that a little bit. And that's why we kind of chose the cast we chose. Um, but there is a story of Bob, who is the patient, and there is a story of the facility and why you are there and what you are tasked with doing and learning about Bob's backstory. But like, let's be real, as you say, this is not Uncharted. Like, there's no mocaps, scud scenes. Like, it's not yeah. that sort of game. I don't think anyone who enjoyed Surgeon 1 is expecting that or thinking it's going to be that. Um, but we've been quite clever, I think, with how we do get narrative across with the tools we have. And it's still feeling like a very silly physics game. I think the team's done a really, really good mm. job with that. Anyone who's played any kind of, like, game with an environmental storytelling twist will kind of get what i'm getting at but it's been brought in line with this very surreal absurd sense of humor which goes through all bossa games um we actually had a we had a press tour god when was it week before last so i do apologize i'm getting a little little bit pressy but um we had um connor from games radar he played the game and he described it as 
It was like Gone Home, only if you were playing as a handful of tiny Martians operating their human disguise for the first time, which I think kind of speaks a little bit to, yeah. to that, you know, that, okay. that mix of like, you know, hearing instructions from characters and finding things to read and mess around with and learning about the world you're in. But it's still being, you know, a bloody, silly, yeah. absurd game where yeah. you're, you're kind of controlling this hand and having mass difficulty even picking up a pen or, you know, cutting, <laughs> cutting an arm off Bob or whatever it is you're doing. We, um, you mentioned obviously Easter eggs and the sort of mm. the lore and, and everything behind it. Uh, and I think Surgeon Simulator 1, uh, you were able to operate on aliens in outer space at one point, uh, and, and it all got exceptionally silly. Um, through that press tour, uh, we've already seen some rumors about a cabin in the woods. Um, can you tell me anything more about the sort of lore that's happening this time? Or is it more something that people have to go and find? Or it's obviously there. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious what, what we can look forward to. I'm certainly... Where did where was the cabin in the woods one? That I mean, who, who knows? Maybe, maybe the maybe. Interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but um, yeah, we shall see. I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, there is there is a lot of work on that um, on that stuff going in. Like as I said, Luke, he's been like the owner of the Bossiverse, the kind of encyclopedia of yeah. all these um, weird Barnisher lore that ties through our games. Um, one thing that's been really cool, actually, is I mentioned earlier on we've had playtests going on and we've had constant mm-hmm. feedback and people in the studio playing the game people playing the game online and um as with any community there's certain like memes and silly things that just become you know any team any community where it just becomes like yep. part of the part of the discourse and part of the kind of things that people say um so we've built some of that into the law as well in some like quite interesting hidden away places um it is kind of this two-way street between us and the players um mm. but yeah anyone who has any ties to the original or if you've ever dialed your phone number in the original or, you know, operate on aliens. I, I mean, I don't think they're going to be disappointed. Um, one thing we did actually, and in, in one, one, one little hint I can give you is from the play test we do is for some reason, people start getting obsessed with these little rubber ducks that we used to hide in all the levels. And it's kind of become this weird thing where everyone like hunts down the rubber duckies and you're kind of squeezing them in people's faces and people are turning into emojis in the, in the discord channel. Uh, so it gets us a little hint of, you know, the, the the insanity that fills our work and life really is. Yeah, we're putting a lot of those into the game. Um, but yeah, that's just, just kind of the hint of where we're going to go with the rest of the narrative, really. So surgery is very much just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But also can't stress enough, like, it is very much still a game about surgery. Like, 90% yeah. of the time you were going to be sticking syringes in people, sewing people's arms off, Um doing whatever you can to keep Bob alive, but um, it's really just kind of massively expanded, like the possibility space in the original, like you're not just opening, uh, a, you know, a, a container and getting a heart in it and sticking it in Bob, it'll be like your mate sticks it in a cannon and fires it over a bottomless pit and then you catch it and then you've got a slam dunk from a diving board and get it into his, uh, into his <laughs> chest cavity and someone's on hand with a syringe so he doesn't lose any blood while he's doing that. Um, it's just a very dreamlike, very surreal, um, yeah. a chaotic take on, on on what the original was doing. It sounds it sounds sort of like what we need right now in society, really. Mm. <laughs> um, you mentioned obviously the, the co-op angle. I, I was I, I was curious how that would work, but now you've just sort of described how it all fits together. When you're in game, if you're sat in the same room, you can all talk to each other. But how do people converse if they're online? That yeah, so. So we've got voice chat in there, obviously, and we do have yeah. text chat coming in quite soon. We're working on that right now, actually. But okay. one of the things that we loved, like love, love, loved about the community quite early is 
often you get people matched together who either couldn't speak the same language or they one them might have internet yeah. troubles, one just have a mic. And with the hand being, you know, as expressive as it is in the original where you can like, you know, move it around any axis. It's not it's not like any you know it's not like Doom where you just you know, your hand does what yeah. the button says you do, you reload a gun, right? Like you have to control the the hand on every axis. And We've seen people do like finger clicks where they like click their fingers at each other and mm-hmm. so that's like our ping system. It's like you click your fingers, you can point at things, you can hold up, you know, digits on your hands. I'm 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 waving my hand in front of the camera as if this is doing anything to anybody <laughs> anybody listening. But you can imagine it. Um you can like beckon um people towards you. And we've seen full levels, yeah. like 10, 20 minute levels play out where people are just communicating with hand gestures. And that is like I don't think I've seen that in in many games before. It's like this weird non-verbal communication system that's purely yeah. like expressive from the player. It's not a set of pre-canned um, like animations or emojis or things like that. And that was just completely like unintended. Like we didn't plan for that. It just kind of happened. But it's amazing that exists though, because as you say, if the, if there are multiple people playing from different countries or backgrounds, or there's also from the LGBT point mm. of view that there's sometimes a lot of people that are hesitant to go on. Yeah. Uh, voice chat and text chat and stuff and I think if you can still play and engage with people without having to necessarily worry about uh, those sort of uh, safety issues mm. I think that's a great great sort of uh, move for the game really. Mm. Yeah there was there was um, people on the team who actually said themselves when we were kind of because one thing we did want we we pushed on as a theme in general through development was we want this to feel like just a nice, like, safe space to play the game. Like, we we didn't yeah. want it to just attract yeah. all these people who just wanted to go ripping ripping heads off people and causing causing mayhem. Like, we wanted people to feel comfortable that yes, this is a game about surgery, but it's also a collaborative game. You've got to work together. You've got to cooperate. It's not just going in and shooting people and getting headshots. It's mm. it's a game about solving mm. things together, and that just doesn't work if you set up an impressive environment for players to be in or if you just don't think about it and don't see that as a problem to overcome i think you have to over prepare for these sorts of things right and go over the top to make sure people from marginalized groups feel welcome online because any any data any study any experience from these people says it's not right so yeah seeing that kind of play out was brilliant generally in terms of like the tone of the game as well and kind of like the way we communicate with players about you know even things like winning a level or losing a level i think there's a lot you can do as a dev team to like soften um, like the stakes of things. Um, and one of my favorite games I play a lot is Final Fantasy XIV. And the reason I love mm-hmm. that is because the community has always, always been so welcome. And like I've played probably like way too many hours to count. And even when I was like a total noob and didn't have a clue what I was doing and getting parties white, left, right and center, like I always felt welcome. And like somebody would, you know, explain to me what I was doing wrong. And when you when you look at every kind of law entry and every tutorial in the game and every way that a new mechanic is introduced, it's it's very welcoming. It's 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 not it's not patronized and it's not cutesy, but it's just very like, hey, this is an environment that we want you to feel comfortable in and spend time in and express yourself however you want. And that is something that's kind of like been threaded through all of our thoughts in everything from like the UX to the in-game copy to the characters we use is mm-hmm you know, there's, there's a bit of edge to this game. You, it is a game ultimately about surgery and removing body parts from people, but, you know, why can't it be welcome and why shouldn't it be, right? Like, we want this to be a place where people, you know, want to spend, you know, dozens and dozens of hours. So, yeah, that was really important to us from from day one, really. Absolutely. Um, 
so pivoting away from Surgeon Sim for two seconds, mm. um, something caught my eye when you were saying earlier about your past, and you said that you worked on plaguing. Yes, indeed. Um, now, that's been in the news recently, uh, w- when it first started out uh, with the coronavirus, um, and people were using plaguing as a way of predicting how a pandemic might travel around the world, which, if anyone's played plaguing, is a fantastic game. I've got it on my phone as Thank we you. speak. Not now, obviously. <laughs> um I, I, I paid for it as well. Oh, and, um, <laughs> but but the I think we all know that's not a scientific model. Um, how how did that feel when you found out that people were using it as a way of probably not government level, but yeah. certainly a lot of sort of people probably were leaning on it a little bit harder than they really should be. Yeah, I mean, it's surreal. Like, there's no two ways about it. Um, kind of sobering as well, like, kind of this... Like, because obviously a lot of my friends who knew mm. I'd worked on it are saying, oh, what do you think about the coronavirus? Like, I'm, you know, I'm yes, I worked on a game about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist, right? Um, but I did work at Endemic, uh, the company that made the game, when the Ebola virus was a, was a, was a big issue in, in 2014. And one thing I will say is, like, we... When I was there at the time, and I, I imagine it is still the case there now, like they they gave a quarter of a million, I think it was recently, to to the efforts to fight it. Like, yeah. we never wanted to kind of sensationalize what the game was to like cash in on that. Um, we did like an in-game campaign around Ebola, like with the Red Cross and the MSF. When we were there, we kind of had a, a button where you could donate and learn more in the game, and um, I think what like going through that whole experience with Ebola at the time like one thing I came out of that with because you have to kind of confront your own feelings and my wage is being paid by people buying a game that has come from you know ultimately a lethal thing and that is on one level quite quite dark right but I also think for games like with tv like with film there is a certain kind of comfort I think that people get from engaging with this sort of like heavy subject matter on in a way that is ultimately safe, right? Like you can educate yourself, you can go through emotions Mm -hmm. playing these things, you can purge certain things that you might feel about these very real issues. And um, a lot of people would write to us, um, kind of email in and say, you know, I've got like two kids who um, they know that they need to really wash their hands or they're going to get a cold. And they learned that from playing Plaguing. Um, And yes, Plaguing is like not 100% scientifically accurate, but we did put a lot of effort in to make sure it was like not not too far away. It's, it's very different to Surgeon Simulator, right? Like Surgeon Simulator played for laughs and it always plays for laughs and it's never yeah. meant to be anything. You'd, I hope nobody would learn anything about real surgery from 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 like sur- playing Surgeon Sim. But but playing like you can learn some very, very basic uh, information about like disease spread from playing that. And it, it was used even in a few schools, like kind of very like young kids were learning about it. Um so yeah, I think in general, like I, can't, I, I wish there were more games that kind of dealt in mm. in that in that field of like you know taking on real topics that aren't just you know shooting people, right? It's like it's 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 a strategy game that you can learn a little bit about the world you're in. Um, but yeah, but honestly, like all that being said, it does feel very strange, very 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 odd um, to kind of come yeah. out the other side. Like God knows how they're feeling, <laughs> still working on it. To be honest, I know. Yeah, awesome. yeah. Um, yeah, that's crazy. So, I, obviously, we're not we're not even there yet with Surgeon Sim <laughs> Two. But I was about. So, what what's next for you at Bossa? 
Um, oh, I mean, shipping the game. <laughs> yeah, so we've got. Um, I mean, what we're in like mid June now, so we've got just a, well two months ish left, which is not a lot of time. And the clock is ticking, and I feel time moves in mysterious ways when you're in lockdown. I'm sure you can relate. Um, but yeah, finishing the game is like all we're thinking about now. But probably like you know the immediate future after that will be you know the standard kind of patching bug fixes mm-hmm. hopefully not too many bug fixes fingers crossed um yeah. but then you know really getting stuck into the post-launch roadmap we've got so many new updates so many new characters like i was saying earlier um mm-hmm. we even want to be doing things like um like i mean going back to like the vision that we talked about at the start like of what surgeon simulator 2 is um and you said yourself, like, you know, surgery could be the tip of the iceberg. Like, one thing we hope to do in future is, you know, why not do, like, car mechanic simulator or whatever simulator you want to do where we kind of just yeah. add these new mechanics and these new features in and then let the players kind of go crazy and keep building new levels, new scenarios and letting that all interact with each other. I think that is something we're certainly quite interested in doing kind of post-launch. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, honestly, right now, I think we're all just thinking about August, like that can all come. Finishing the game. Yeah, that can all come in due time. (laughs) I think we're going to need, I mean, I would say we might need a bit of a holiday after, but not a lot of chance of that happening either with with the way flights are looking. Yeah, I was going to say camping somewhere in the UK. Yeah, lovely trip to the park, I think. Let's uh, let's finish off with some quick fire questions just to uh, ju- just to round us out. Um, first thing that comes to mind, obviously, with all of these, so uh, PS Five or Xbox Series X? For um, ah, I'm I'm not like a fanboy of a console, to be honest. Um, what I do like though, PS Five, they're going for the games the exclusives. Xbox, I like that they're all about the value for money with the Games Pass. Like I love yeah. that so. I'm going to stay neutral on this one. Worst start or quick fire ever. <laughs> but I'll, I was going to say. <laughs> I'll try and do better. Okay. So pass for the first one. Okay, let's try and do better. Uh, f- favorite game when you were a kid? Definitely, definitely Final Fantasy VII. Um, I was talking about this with one of my mates last night, actually. Um, like, I was kind of into games before I played this, but this is the one that just blew my mind. Like, got me yeah. into it, hooked, want to spend the rest of my life doing it. Yeah. Changed everything, loved it. Sidebar, what do you think of the remake? I absolutely loved it. Um, I felt sick with nerves when I got it because it just like this. Yeah. I feel like such a nerd, but hey, we're, we're all nerds. On it. Like it's it's, it's what nerds, yeah, it's it's, it's it's what we do. Yeah, but <laughs> like I, I actually got it a week early um, somehow. Like um, and I remember it just sitting on my desk like when I opened the package and I was just like I can't do it. This like what if it's bad? And just yeah, as the, as the hours went by and as I, and especially when I kind of got to the um, the wall marketplace which is like the bit yeah. i was really excited for like i was like oh my god they are nailing this like really excited yeah. about where it goes in future really like they they just nailed the nostalgia of it and kind of how each moment played out from the original took it in very new interesting directions at the time as well updated the bits that weren't so cool um, back back in the day in areas um yeah, yeah managed to iron that out. Yeah, yeah yeah so i loved it absolutely adored it can't wait for part two Excellent. Uh, Tomb Raider or Uncharted? I'm actually replaying Uncharted 2 right now. I'm going through a bit of a Naughty Dog hype train before we get Last of Us on Friday, but I'm going to have to give this one to Tomb Raider. Uh, Yeah, Tomb Raider 1, iconic, amazing level design. Yeah, absolutely. That would would also be the answer to my favourite game when I was a kid as well, by the way. Yeah, Um, Tomb Raider for me was such a jumping off point, Mm. literally. Um, Super Smash (laughs) Bros. main... 
Whoa, um, I always go for the sword users. That is my go-to. Yeah. Um, so I do tend to cycle through with a fairly generic like uh, Fire Emblem cast at times, but I have to go back to my previous answer is Cloud. I just, I love playing as him. I yep. love seeing him represented in Smash Brothers. Something I've dreamed of for a while before he made it in. Um, when you get your limit break, feels bloody good. So yeah, have to go Final Fantasy VII again. Yeah, swords all the way. Uh, <laughs> first game console. It was the Sega Mega Drive. Yeah, Sega Mega Drive. Or a Game Gear. I think we got those kind of at a similar time. Um, so yeah, like my early childhood, like from like, what, I think four or five years old, I just remember it's just Sonic, yeah. all the classic like yeah. Disney 2D platformers, Aladdin. Um, mm-hmm. the, I think there's a game called Quackshot that me and my brother used to play where you, like Donald Duck yeah, game where you, yeah, where you, great yeah. mechanic by the way, when you kind of, putting your plungers in walls and yeah swinging along from them yeah Yeah. like someone needs to update that but yeah all about the mega drive loved it mega drive also um had that amazing hook game as well um based on robin williams peter pan hook yeah you're right yeah i remember i played that for hours as a kid yeah i'm gonna go i'm gonna have to watch a let's play of that tonight like the light licensed games 2d platform licensed games back in the day were like oh they were like chef's kiss they were amazing yeah uh, last one, favourite game genre? Well, surprise to nobody from my last answer is JRPGs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't quite know how I ended up on Surgeon Simulator. I can assure everyone listening, like it's there's, there's no <laughs> hidden JRPG mechanics in there, as much as I've tried. Um, but f- like for me, gaming's like an escape. And it's since I was a kid, it's, it's the place where you go where you kind of just like zone out a bit and you can lose yourself in it for an hour. It's world, it's characters, it's systems, it's plugging hours and hours into something and for me jrpgs are just this real nice like cozy like assimilation of all those things um where like there's nothing better than that feeling when you're like a few hours into like a 70 hour jrpg and you're like this is just going to dominate my life for like three months and i can't wait um it's such a great feeling and that's an amazing thing uh mark good luck with everything thank you um have a great run in to release and have a good post release and I hope everything goes really well with the game. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me. I love the podcast and it's been been awesome being here. Thank you. Have a great day. Cool. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, That's the end of our episode. A big thank you to my guests, Matt and Mark, and an even bigger thank you to you all for listening. We're back in two weeks with our next episode, but in the meantime, keep up with all the LGBTQ video gaming stories on Gaming Magazine and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you don't miss any of these amazing stories. We are at Gaming Mag. Take care, see you soon, and goodbye.